4: John Copenhagen and Al Warren. Heard on KCA 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050
3: AM Palm Springs. A returning author here joining us, and uh, we're going to be talking about the uh, research he did for his book and the release which was called Hauptmann's Ladder. We've got Richard T. Cahill, Jr. Thank you for being here. Well, thank
5: you for having me back.
3: Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure. So, uh, what made you decide to write and research about uh, Lindbergh Baby?
5: Well, it actually started when I was 18 years old. Uh, my freshman English class in college the professor uh, asked us to do a research paper and it had to be on something we'd never researched before. So I went to the library and I found this small book and it had a lot of uh, brief stories about you know famous things. And it was the type of book that had articles like Did Jesse James Really Die as History Tells Us? You know, Are UFOs Real? That type of thing. Yeah. And one of the ones I came across was an article, Did Bruno Richard Houtman Kidnap and Kill the Lindbergh Baby? And when I saw that article, I remembered a number of years before seeing an old TV show called in search of with Leonard Nimoy. And they had done a show on that. And I remembered a little bit and I remembered there was a man with a kind of a bad mustache who was, uh, insisting that there was, uh, there'd been a, uh, uh, a travesty that, that the person hadn't done it and so forth. I found out later that person was Anthony Scuduto who wrote a famous book about the case called scapegoat, uh, in 1976. And, uh, so I decided that that would be my project, and I, I, read, I read Anthony Scuduto's book, although I didn't know that he was the guy, which was kind of amusing when I found out later. <laughs> and I read a, 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 a one magazine article by a guy named Tom Zito, and based on that incredible research, I reached the conclusion that Alton didn't do it, and I wrote this paper.
1: And it came back, and I believe I got a
5: B B+, and to myself, gee, I thought I deserved an A, and looking back at it now, I, uh, I think I deserved an F, but <laughs> the research was terrible and it was poorly written. Yeah. But thereafter, I would see books on the case and I would pick it up and read it. And the next one I read was um, The Airman and the Carpenter by the late Sir Ludovic Kennedy. And he had the same conclusion, but for different reasons. And so, okay, I read that. And then I read uh, The Lindbergh Case by Jim Fisher, which takes the position that Haltman uh, was guilty. So now, I'm thinking to myself, I don't know what's going on here. They're citing the same evidence. So I thought to myself, well, I know there's an archi- archives in New Jersey. I'll go there, I'll look at the evidence, and in a couple of weeks I'll know what really happened. Twenty years later, um, after continuing research and research and research, I said to myself, you know, I've done all this research. Maybe I should write all this down so nobody else has to go through this crap that I had to go through. <laughs> so I wrote the book, and at the time it was more for myself you know, whether I got a publisher not didn't really matter. I just wanted to prove I could do it. And then in May of, excuse me, in um, February of twenty twelve, my father passed away. And Dad and I were very close and I wasn't handling it very well. And I needed something to throw myself into to deal with it. And my work as an attorney wasn't going to do it because that was something that I associated very closely with my father. He he wasn't an attorney, but me becoming an attorney I know was so important to him and it just kinda of permeates my thoughts when I'm working. So I decided, well, I'll rewrite the book. And I did that. Figuring figured it would take me a year. It took me a few weeks. Oh, and so then I said, all right, I'll get it published. And so, because uh, I'd really, you know, I'd written the whole thing out, but I did the re- the re- revision, and that only took a couple of weeks to revise it. So I did a second revision to make it better, and that didn't take long. So I decided to try to get it published, figuring that will never happen. And the next thing I know,
4: June of 2012,
5: I've got a uh, contract to get it published, and the rest, as they say, is history.
3: there we go we're all done
5: yeah the the, the sad thing really though and it was kind of a it was my father's death that prompted me really to do the extra work needed to get it published but then once I got it published the one thing I wanted to do more than anything else in the world was bring it to a show look what I did you know so it was kind of bittersweet in that regard
3: yeah 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 so yeah it's it's, uh, tough how it works out like that Um, yeah what um So when you did it, I'm just noticing because uh, it is pretty polarized. There's so many people that uh, are very cynical, I would say, Um, Mm -hmm. just a police and law enforcement, I guess, overall. So the the actual investigation was kind of done in a not very professional manner. I guess is the best way to say the it. The first
5: night, yes, but thereafter uh, thereafter, it was good.
3: It was the first
5: night that was bad, the actual night of it itself, because um, they didn't cordon off the scene properly that evening, and reporters got on the scene to the point that a lot of the evidence, especially the footprint evidence, was compromised. They actually had to bring the – the. there was a ladder found at the scene, which was the most important evidence, thus the title Hauptman's Ladder, but they actually had to take that evidence before they could process it remove it from where it was located before it could even be photographed where it was, and bring it into the house because reporters were touching it and moving it and, and so forth. So they they had not properly preserved the scene. And that became a real problem later on. But after that evening, they were much, much better, and they did a pretty thorough job with the exception of that first evening. But as they say, you can't unring a bell, and they there's problems to this day with certain pieces of evidence because of the footprint problems and lack of photographs on the evening of the kidnapping
3: yeah uh you know and i a lot of reading and and research I've done on it not not to your extent, but it seems to be um an underlying theme that uh Lindbergh himself uh, might have done it either from a practical joke and and uh there there's all sorts of little uh, you know rumors out there. Mm-hmm. Why do you think people were so cynical toward Lindbergh himself?
5: They weren't originally. Um, originally, you know, at the time, Lindbergh was the most popular man in the country, if not the world. Uh, thereafter, after he became um, he became very much anti-entry into World War II, he began to get detractors. And of course, as time has gone on, we've learned that uh, he fathered a number of children out of wedlock, and he took positions that, by today's standards, would really uh, be politically incorrect. Uh, he was uh, he he was involved in uh, eugenics research, and uh, he made comments which, by the standards of the 1930s, were not all that outrageous. But by today's standards, would be considered extremely anti-Semitic. Um, and he has falsely been accused of being pro-Nazi, which is not true. He was actually a spy for the United States against Germany. But so his own uh, reputation is taken to be. Where these things came about, accusing Lindbergh of being involved in the crime, they originally came from a book written by two men named Mulder and Algren, and they made the claim that Lindbergh uh, was committing a practical joke because he was known for committing some cruel practical jokes. And they said, well, he was committing a practical joke, and the kid accidentally died, so he created this kidnapping and he allowed happen to basically go to the chair, knowing he didn't do it. The problem with that theory is they don't have a shred of proof. And he didn't have sufficient time that evening to do what he would have needed to have done to accomplish this. That's the first thing. The second one comes primarily uh, from the second edition of a book by Professor Lloyd Gardner. In his original edition of his book, he doesn't talk about this, but in, in the paperback edition, he makes it, he makes a contention uh, that Lindbergh was involved. And his evidence is: well, Lindbergh was a bad guy. Well, there were some bad things about it. He was not a saint. But there's no evidence whatsoever that shows that he did it. And they say his motive was, well, he was in the eugenics. Well, that is true, but that doesn't prove he committed murder. Um, They say, well, the baby was deformed. Well, the only proof that the baby had any deformity of any kind, he had a condition where his toes overlapped. That's without question. Uh, Mr. Gardner contends based on some evidence that he has, in my opinion, twisted. Other people don't agree, but... Uh, he says the baby had rickets. Hmm. That's not confirmed, but he asserts it. And his position is: Well, Lindbergh was in eugenics; he wanted the perfect child, and he didn't want anybody to think his child was imperfect. Um, that may be, even if that's true, that doesn't mean he arranged for the child to be murdered or anything else. It's a lot of speculation, and there's no evidence. But you know, ever since the John Bonny Ramsey uh, case, where all the uh, everybody was accusing me to. The, the child's parents are being involved in it. It's become the thing to do. As soon as a child is kidnapped, kidnapped or is killed, it must be the parents. And that's the automatic conclusion many people jump to. Right. And it's unfortunate. And you see it in a lot of different cases like this. People go into cases with a preconceived notion. And when you have evidence that can be argued back and forth, isn't it interesting how they always twist it the way they need it to fit their theory?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm sort of finding it's the it's the times too, right? Because people are creating sure. their own evidence from feeling, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, no how they, you know, how they feel about something or someone like Lindbergh. So all of a sudden it's, well, you know, he, he probably did this or that or that. It's kind of like well, just because you don't like him or you don't like his standards or even if you thought he was a bad person, doesn't mean he killed his own baby. Right. That's just kind of that's right. It's kind of the common thread right now. I find a lot of people jump on that. Uh, as soon as they don't like a character, then anything possibly that they could have done wrong, they did. You know, that was just, it's, yeah. cr- it's crazy. Uh, you know, but that, um, I was going to say Gardner, and he's also the one, He w- wasn't he a fingerprint expert or something? And um, and uh, he said that the the prints were never on the ladder itself? L-
5: Lloyd Gardner is a college professor. To my knowledge, he's not a fingerprint expert. Oh, well, the thing know. with the fingerprints... <laughs> Yeah, the, the thing with the fingerprints, with uh, what they're talking about is this. On the night of the kidnapping, uh, Investigator Kelly dusted for prints. And uh, there's two things where they talk about prints. One is he dusted the ladder, and he found some prints, but not a lot. He also dusted the nursery. And the the urban legend is, well, that the nursery was wiped clean because he didn't find anything. Well, that's not true. He found smudges and marks. Now, for those who don't understand basic fingerprinting, uh, if you have a clean surface and you touch it and you don't slide your finger, you just touch it, you've left, you're all likely to have left a print, okay? If you go back and you touch the same spot and you slide your finger around and you keep touching it over and over again, you may not get a clean print. You may just have a mark there, and that's called a mark or a smudge. If you wipe the surface clean, you're not going to find a mark, smudge, or print. You will find nothing. Kelly found marks and smudges, which means it hadn't been wiped clean. He just wasn't able to find a good print. Now, thereafter, another man some days later named Dr. Sor- Dr. Erastus Need Hudson used a, more- a different process where he would spray the, uh, this chemical, and when it was exposed to the sun, it would turn uh, a particular color, and you could see more prints. He found a lot of prints on the ladder, but the problem is by the time he was allowed to do it, the ladder had been touched and moved by so many people that whatever he could find was, you know, wouldn't, would have very little uh, validity. Because so many people touched it, and you know it what was there before might have been smudged, and so forth, so this idea that well Hauptmann didn't leave prints if he did, they weren't found, and just because he may have handled the latter doesn't mean he would have left a good print
3: yeah yeah and 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 the other uh talk uh that people uh tend to do is that there's a kind of a blame for Betty Gow, who was the child's nurse um you know, or you know, baby care or whatever you want to call her, she was kind of like the uh, full time aide for the child. Um, yeah,
5: this, she, was a, she, she
3: was. Yeah, but there was no real. Um, I, again, uh, there's there's real there's no evidence really to present that she really had anything to do with this. No, what happened
5: with Betty Gal was there were two different estates. There was the Sutherland Mountain Estate where they were staying at that time that only recently been constructed. That's where the baby was kidnapped from. And then Lindbergh's in laws lived at the Engel estate and they were over there quite often. Well Betty Gow was there on the on that evening and they asked her to come over that afternoon because the baby had was just getting over having a cold. Ironic since I'm battling one myself. <laughs> And Mrs. Lindbergh was starting to come down with it, so they decided they were going to stay there for a while, which the, they hadn't really been staying there for the most part uh, during the week, just during the weekends. And so uh, Betty Gow uh, came over. Well, she was supposed to go out that evening with a man named Red Johnson, so she called him, basically called off the date, and then was brought over by one of the other servants over to the estate. Well, when the defense uh, was trying to poke holes in it, you know, and try, they were trying to make a, a claim, well, it was the Lindbergh servants who betrayed him, and they say, well, she spoke with this guy, uh, Red Johnson, and that must be how it got out. Later, there was a maid named Violet Sharp, who wasn't even at the of the estate, who got accused as well. And she was harassed so much, she eventually took her own life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, but these are the types of things you'll see, you know, especially in a major media case where there's all kinds of, you know, accusations being made.
3: An interesting character, and you, yeah, I think you explain him quite well, was uh, the doctor, Dr. John Condon.
5: Kind uh, character is one way to describe him. <laughs> well, I
3: didn't, <laughs> I didn't know how else to say this because he he was quite, um, you know, it's a complex person, and um, yes, so, so many things uh, that he did were strange, but they're not really strange if you kind of understand the character. So I think you did that quite well because you kind of uh, you. C- covered a lot of what he was. And um, I yeah. think that could be a big problem with a lot of the people that actually uh, talk about this case or write it, is they don't really capture the essence uh, of mm-hmm. this guy, you know, this guy who's quite unique. And, and, and in the, I, I found especially like in the um, police interviews and the interrogations, like when they had the lineup, and uh, Hopmus in the line, lineup, and, of course, they they conned him in. And just the way he behaved in that whole episode, yeah. and also the way um, people perceived that whole um, interview, uh, you know, I, I, it's kind of, un- I think that's really key in this case.
5: Well, that interview, The part of the problem is there are three different versions of what happened, all right? We have Condon's version that he wrote in his book "Jassy Tells All." For those who don't know, Jassy was the nickname he went by uh, in the case. Uh, he called the book "Jassy Tells All," and his version. When you read it, you know you you see there's underlying themes in it, but he makes him out, himself out as such the, as such the wonderful hero, and uh, you know he was tough but compassionate, and you know it was like um, you, know, when you read it, and it was like some kind of a, a comic book superhero the way he described himself. Then you've got the second version was the version that uh, Bruno Richard Hotman, the defendant, had uh, given to reporters. And his version is that Condon was screaming, no, I won't testify against this man. He didn't do it, yeah. which I don't buy either. Uh, the third version that doesn't get reported as much because it's not as uh, outlandish as the other two is, uh, is, re- is the report that I relied on. And in that report, what you see is uh, Condon basically... Focused exclusively on Hauptmann. He was asking tons of questions and having a conversation. He even spoke with him in German and said, Wahrheit ist besser, Richard, which means the truth is better. Um, And obviously, Richard used his name. Um, (laughs) And uh, he tried that, and he tried, you know, he, he had another time he met with him, and he clearly what he was saying to him, he was trying to get him to confess. And so there's been so much speculation as did he, you know, some people say, well, he didn't identify him because he didn't think he was the guy, and they was threatened and forced to do it, which I find doubtful because Condon, if you tried to force him or pressure him, he was, got his back up and started fighting back. Um, Jim Fisher, who wrote, we mentioned before, wrote a book in this case, has an interesting theory that could have some merit in that he says he had seen so many pictures and looked at so many different people that at this point it was a blur room to even try to pick if it was the right guy. Well, that's possible. Um, you know, other people uh, are just. You know, some people theorize that he was getting senile. Um, I mentioned that possibility in my book. Uh, I don't buy that. I mean, later there's some indications he was. You know, a few years after the case, that he was declining because he was an old man. Um, I mean, you know, he was he was in his se- he was in his 70s, which is not all that old today. In the 1930s, that was a different story. Uh, you know, yeah. But in any instance. Uh, I've kind of come down with my idea, more of it, is that he he knew it was the guy, uh, he figured he could, you know, become the conquering hero and get him to say something, and when he realized he couldn't, he said, yeah, yeah, whatever, that's the guy. He wasn't going to miss, ultimately, he wasn't going to miss his opportunity to testify at trial on, you know, front page news and all of that. I mean, but his his whole thing was his ego, that he it was all about self-aggrandizement and, when you look at the different statements he gives to the police, there are certain underlying things that always appear. Um, But each time he tells it, he makes himself more of the conquering hero. He's like, he's like, I think every town, no matter how big or small, has a a bar that you go into. And there's an older guy in the bar who likes to tell tall tales. And each time he tells a story, it's basically the same, but it gets a little more intense. And, you know, what he did was just that much more impressive type of thing. And, uh, you know, and, after a while, you know, he doesn't even know what the real story even is anymore, because he's told it so many times and, and, you know, and, and enhanced it so many times. And I think that was a lot of what Condon was.
3: Yeah, yeah, and I find that the opinion of people when they talk about the police is, is it's really kind of how they feel today. You know, they might have a, mm-hmm. a, a negative opinion toward police, so all of a sudden um, they think in the worst terms. You know, sure. And there are other people who will believe anything a
5: police officer says, I and mean, yeah. you know, it goes both ways. You know, It's hard when you're doing these things to realize that whether they're police officers or whether they're teachers or lawyers, there are some that are honest to a fault and there are some who lie, and you can't paint them all with the same brush.
3: Right, right. And it
5: gets difficult. You've got to take your time and really look through the evidence and then say, okay, where does the evidence lead, as opposed to, hey, I want to prove this guy didn't do it. What, what can I do to prove that? You do that, you're not going to really get a good answer. You got to follow where the evidence takes you, and make logical conclusions based not on what you want it to say, but what it really seems to say.
3: Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's the the human flaw, you know. Uh, when you get into the uh, part where Violet Sharp, now she actually killed herself, didn't she? She didn't she drink the? Yeah, um, she drank silver or mm-hmm. something or.
5: Yeah, she put silver polish into a glass with water and drank it
3: and yeah, died that, almost immediately. That was a, a controversy in the fact of a lot of people thought she had guilt to hide, and that's that's why she killed herself. It wasn't about just because she was, her lifestyle or anything like that.
5: Well, there were a lot of people that suggested that. The police suggested that because when she died, the press very much turned on the police uh, cause, you know, on this thing. And... You know, Lindbergh was not backing the police on that. And neither, neither was the Morrow family. The Morrow family, for those who don't know, um, Lindbergh married uh, his married uh, uh, the daughter of Ambassador Morrow. So uh, his wife's family uh, was very was very well known as well. And they all basically were defending Violet uh, Sharp and saying she was hounded to her death. And the press went right along with it. So the police a lot of the, a lot of times were saying, well, you know, there's possible guilt here." Uh, you know, to give themselves some support. What I think really happened with Violet was this. Um, Violet, first of all, had been had become physically sick, uh, so, and so she had lost a lot of weight there. She was getting hounded not only by the police but by the press as well because the story was getting out. I think what most likely happened, and I don't know definitively, nobody does, but I think based on the evidence, the most likely thing was she told a, a minor lie because she didn't want to admit that she went to a speakeasy. And she tried to say she went to a movie. She never figured they would follow up on it, but they did. And she couldn't name the movie, and there were problems. Uh, And eventually she she admitted she went to a speakeasy called The Peanut Grill with somebody she hadn't met. She'd only met that day, and she agreed to go out with them. Um, And then they started digging even deeper, and they found out she had previously dated a reporter for the Daily News. Um, And that reporter, it looks like, may have used her to get uh, information about the baby, not about the kidnapping, but... When the baby was first born, it was nobody knew right away if it was a boy or a girl. They didn't announce it, and they were trying to get all kinds of information. And he was able to get information, you know, inside information from her about the baby, just you know, casually discussing it. Um, and so now they're accusing her of this. You know, did she talk to him again? And they were looking into all her past boyfriends that she had. And now, of course, there's this thought that she's going to lose, you know, not only her job but lose her standing. And this began to eat eat on her. And she wrote a letter to her sister in England. And when you read the letter...
0: A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring.
4: to find out if it's right for you.
5: You really see someone who is depressed, confused, uh, and who really thinks her life is over. She, was, she wrote stuff like, life really is sad now, and, uh, and things like that, and I don't know how I'm going to go on. And finally, they were going to question her again, and she just lost it. She's never questioned me again. She ran up, and she poured the uh, stuff into the uh, glass, filled it with water, and drank it and she was dead almost immediately. Um, you know, my opinion is she's another victim of the case. Um, whether I'm right or not, you know, no, yeah. no one can be certain because it's not definitive why she did what she did, but I think, based on the evidence, I think my conclusion fits.
3: Yeah. Now, you know, the, the latter itself, um, mm-hmm. a lot of controversy. What, what was, the, in your opinion, the strongest evidence supporting that the latter was Hotman's?
5: One of the side rails, which has been called Rail 16, was in my opinion definitively proven to have come from a board that was part of the attic, uh, in Halpin's uh, apartment. He lived on the second floor of a home and he, the only access to the attic was from his apartment. And they definitively proved scientifically that that rail had come, had once been part of, uh, a larger board that was part of his attic and it was done based upon nail holes, it was done based upon the, uh, the marks in the wood. They also were able to prove he had a, um, a, a carpenter's hand plane, and it had a nick in the blade, and they were able to show uh, through tool identification testimony that this plane had been used on the ladder as well. Um, this was evidence from a man named Kaler, who was from the United States Forestry Service, and his testimony was absolutely devastating. And his testimony has been reviewed by experts of today, and they have, have all confirmed his findings. And it's awful hard to argue that Halpin had nothing to do with this when the scientific evidence shows that one of the the latter came from his attic.
4: Yeah.
3: Well, and the other thing was the money, the money itself, how he was spending the ransom mm-hmm. money and how he had a lot of it stored. Um, he had um, said that he, that, Fish, I believe the name was, had left the money there. Yes. So, yeah, he had a friend named Isidore Fish. Yeah. Right. So, so uh, first, I guess we have to go into. Um, do you think Fish was involved? No. No.
5: No, I don't. Um, Isidore Fish, uh, his whereabouts are known on several of the important evenings that, that occurred, including the night of the kidnapping. And he wasn't anywhere near it. Um, you know, the only person that's ever seen always fits the description of Bruno Hauptmann. There was nobody else seen um, in any other in anything else. And plus, Isidor Fish had left and had gone back to Germany, where he died of tuberculosis. He had no money with him. He was absolutely penniless. Um, if he was involved, boy, he got the short end of the stick. He got no money, and he just went back home to Germany
3: and died. Yeah. And, uh, but do you think Altman could carry this off by himself? The whole thing.
5: I think he could. Um, you know, the, the question is, is always still out there, and it cannot be definitively answered. Did happen have an accomplice? Um, as I said, the physical evidence at the scene, particularly outside the home, was compromised because they didn't uh, coordinate off. Um, they found what they they found fit footprints that they thought went off. Uh, in a direction towards a, a, a featherbed lane, it was called, and they thought that's where the kidnapper went. Um, I don't believe that is actually where the kidnapper went because the footprints were different than the, the original footprints that were seen, uh, and I think it was more likely that was a reporter or a trooper. But there is no physical evidence that shows anybody other than one person entering the house. There were impressions uh, from the and the inside of the house from the window to the uh, to the uh, baby's bed there uh, were splotches of mud but it was only one set there wasn't a second set so only one person went into the nursery um, you know there's no evidence I mean could somebody have been driving a getaway car sure they could have um, you know there's no nobody else was ever found with any of the money other than helping the only physic, there's only two pieces of physical evidence that I found that could be used to support the idea of an accomplice one was a document found in Lindbergh's papers uh, showing if, it's, if it is what it purports to be, and I have some questions, but it was there, uh, showing that Halverson uh, was looking to rent an apartment with a kitchen uh, in Manhattan for six months, starting on March the first, nineteen thirty-two, which was the date of the kidnapping. The name on it, there were two names on it; they were obviously fake names, Mr. Lynch and Mr. Jones, obviously fake names. Right. Um, but whether that means there was a second person or he just used the name, who knows? I also have some questions about that document because it doesn't exist in the archives in New Jersey. The New York City Municipal Archives had it in one of their folders, but their security wasn't quite the same as the New Jersey Archives, so it's possible somebody could have put that in there. I just don't know. But the second piece of evidence is um, after the ransom was paid, one of the things they made, they made sure to do was include as much of the ransom as they could in what are called gold certificates. Uh, these look like regular money except they had a gold seal on them people may have seen silver certificates every once in a while where it says, you know, the bearer is entitled to a certain amount of silver. Well, they had that, but for gold certificates. Well, in 1933, President Roosevelt took us off the gold standard and he ordered that all of the gold certificates and gold coins had to be turned into different banks. And at the time they paid the ransom, the Treasury Department knew this was going to happen, so they made sure to include as much of those notes in the ransom money because once they started getting turned in, it would become more noticeable, you know, when those would get passed around. Well, on the day, de- on the deadline, somebody walked into a national bank and they cashed in $2,980 worth of gold certificates. All of them were, all of those bills were part of the ransom money, which is a significant amount. Hmm. And the slip was signed J.J. J. Faulkner. And handwriting analysts have been, have been unanimous that whoever wrote J.J. J. Faulkner on there and wrote that slip out was not Bruno Richard Hauptmann. The handwriting is not similar. And they've never been able to identify anybody related to the case that fits that handwriting. Now, whether that person, whoever it was, male or female, that brought that money in, whether or not they were an accomplice, perhaps after the fact helping Hauptmann wander the money, or early on, or if they're just somebody who somehow got a, you know, some hot money um, and then realized what it was, nobody knows. But it wasn't Hauptmann, so. That is the closest thing I could find to physical evidence proving there was an accomplice. So the most I can say, and that's what I said in my book, is I think he probably did it alone, but it is possible he had help.
3: And and how do you feel about his wife? Do you think that she was involved or she knew about it even after the fact?
5: I don't think she was involved um, before or after the fact. Um, She always maintained her husband's innocence. But I found a few things that made me conclude that she suspected something was wrong. Um, but n- after the fact, not before. Um, one of the things they did, and you can't do this today, but you could back then, when Anna Halbin would visit her husband, they spoke in their native language of German. So what the, the uh, police the police, did is they had some troopers, including one named Hugo Stockberger, who spoke German. So they would arrange for German-speaking troopers to be there, Uh, guarding him so that when he and his wife spoke they would listen in and take notes about what they were talking about in German. You can't do that today but back then you could. And one of the things that they were doing, they were talking about was they wanted help to give some additional handwriting samples. And Anna made this curious comment. She said when you you give them your handwriting again, make sure you change the slant. Now, that could just be, you know what, they think your handwriting is similar so change it. Or it could be she was she was starting to get suspicious. Um, it's not definitive, but it was an odd statement. Right. But I've never found anything that would let, lead me to conclude that she was in on it. Now, in a book that came out just before mine, um, a book called Cemetery John, uh, um, man-wise, uh, man since many came to one of my book signings. I was so pleased by it. His name is Zorn, uh, Zorn, real nice guy. He wrote a theory that he thought Hauptmann was involved, but he wasn't the main guy. He put a suspect forward name, I believe his name was Noel, who he thought was the main guy. Nevertheless, in one of the footnotes, he makes a reference that, uh, one of the governors in New Jersey had interviewed the Attorney General, David Wilentz, and that Wilentz had said he had evidence that he could have indicted Anna Hauptmann. Uh, whether that conversation took place, I don't know. That governor and that former governor and David Wilentz are now deceased. but I've never found any evidence
3: that would lead me to believe she could have been charged with anything. Hmm. I, I just have to wonder, but what he had in mind, and I mean that with Bruno, what did he have in mind? Uh, he didn't plan on killing the child. He didn't, like, that, that was clearly an accident falling down the ladder. That's so, my belief, yes. yeah. Yeah, so he actually intended on kidnapping the child, like taking that child. And getting the ransom, mm-hmm. but what? Where was he going to hold the child? Where was he going to put the baby? Do you think that apartment in New York, or what? You know, That's if his possible. wife didn't know, who would be taking care of mm-hmm. the baby? Because he has to live his life fairly normal. Um, and if, if, yes. his, if his wife didn't know, then he must. He had to have some sort of plan.
5: You would think so. The apartment is the only. The apartment document is the only evidence I've found that leads to anything. Uh, one of the things that leads me to the conclusion that he didn't intend to kill the child is the way the child was buried. He didn't bring a shovel or anything. If he was planning to kill the child, you'd think he would have brought a proper shovel with him, but he, you know, he didn't. Um, you know, where he was planning to keep the child, nobody really knows. The only evidence I've ever found that gives any hint is that apartment, uh, uh, receipt. Short of that, I just don't know. I mean, the police were speculating that he was having an affair with a woman named Gerda Henkel, but, there's no evidence to show that Gerda Henkel knew anything about it. Right. So, right. and part of the problem is once the police focused on Bruno Richard Hauptmann, they stopped really uh, looking for an accomplice. They they became focused on making sure he got convicted.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I, I just think that there's a, a missing element there because you're right. You know, he, he made a mistake. He didn't plan on killing the child, at least not on the latter. He didn't want to ha- he didn't have it all planned so it happened but his intention must have been to hold the child somewhere and if he wasn't going to do it somebody else was and if not his wife or the one he's having an affair with the, the, you know what i mean There's ho- yeah because yeah. That no there happened. are ho- there
5: are holes in the case there's no question uh, anybody who ever comes out and says i know everything there is to know about the <laughs> liver case yeah. is either a fool or a liar because it's not possible yeah. I mean, Mark Fauzini, who is the uh, head archivist at the New Jersey State Police Museum and Archives, is one of the most knowledgeable people I've ever dealt with when it comes to this case. I mean, he's forgotten more about this case than most people will ever know. And even he will say, I don't know everything about the case because nobody can.
3: Yeah, yeah, there's too many elements, and uh, we weren't there. It was too long ago. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of evidence. So um, now and we talk about the execution, And so Mm -hmm. what was your opinion on what you don't believe he should have been executed?
5: I don't. uh, Two reasons. One, I personally don't support the death penalty, but putting that aside, because that really doesn't matter. um, It has to do with the way he was charged. In New Jersey in 1932, you could only be executed if you were convicted and charged properly with murder. Now, as you pointed out, there is no evidence that he intended to kill the child. In fact, the evidence supports Uh, that the the child died accidentally. Well, an accidental death would be manslaughter. Well, the prosecution wanted to uh, have this man executed. They wanted the death penalty. So they said, well, we'll use the felony murder doctrine.
4: Now, for those who don't know,
5: the felony murder doctrine basically states if you commit a felony, and in the reasonable and foreseeable course of that felony, somebody dies, then you can be found liable for murder. I mean, the classic example you see in law school, A person goes into a mom-and-pop store and holds up an elderly clerk using a water pistol that looks real. And the person gets scared, has a heart attack, and immediately dies. There's no question that person didn't intend to kill, because unless he's holding up the Wicked Witch of the West, the water pistol is not going to be (laughs) fatal. However, it is reasonable that somebody seeing that is going to be scared. That's their intent. They wanted to think it's real going to be scared. It's also reasonable, if somebody older gets scared, they could have a heart attack, and if they have a heart attack, they could die. That person's guilty of felony murder. All right? All right? But it has to be, what you do has to be a felony. And in most states, including New York where I'm from, you hold up somebody with a pistol that you, that you want them to believe is real, that's robbery too. That's a felony. So they said, well, we'll charge him with kidnapping, and then that's the felony. Well, the problem was, believe it or not, in New Jersey in 1932, misdemean excuse me, kidnapping was a misdemeanor. It wasn't a felony. Oh. So if, so if you charged him with kidnapping and say that the kid died in the course, reasonable course of that misdemeanor, well, that still makes him liable for the, for the death, but it's manslaughter. You know, the misdemeanor murder, if you will, is manslaughter, and you can't execute for that. So they needed something else that they would go with. So somebody said, well, what about burglary? Burglary is a felony. And they said, well, burglary was defined at that time knowingly entering or remaining in a dwelling at nighttime for the purpose of committing a felony therein well what's the felony therein it can't be kidnapping well it's a larceny well no you can't say larceny of a human being that's kidnapping Mm -hmm. so then they came up with the idea well wait a minute he didn't just take the kid he took the kid's night clothes so they said effectively what they charged him with was felony murder that he knowingly and intentionally entered the Lindbergh dwelling at night for the purpose of stealing the Lindbergh baby's nightclothes, and that in the re- reasonable uh, course of that felony, uh, the child died. So logically, taking it to its conclusion, if he had gone in during the day, and could, or if they had put the child to bed naked, they couldn't have executed him. And although New Jersey Supreme Court affirmed that conviction on that theory, uh, I disagree with it. The most I'll say, being an attorney and an officer of the court, albeit in another state. I can't be overly critical of judges, but I will say I respectfully disagree with their decision. And I feel that he should have been charged with manslaughter uh, under the the laws of Jersey. The laws today, it would be murder, but not the laws of New Jersey in 1932. And with the manslaughter conviction, the fact that they found a gun uh, when they uh, searched his home, uh, that he had uh, gold certificates that he wasn't supposed to have, they could have charged him with extortion in New York, He also immigrated to the United States twice illegally. They could have charged him with that. He could have gotten effectively a life sentence. Um, And that's what I think should have happened. I I just don't think, based on what they charged, that execution was appropriate there.
3: I think that's crazy, especially the uh, kidnapping being a misdemeanor. I mean, (laughs) that's... uh, Well, you know, kidnapping
5: was, in those days, more often than not, when you saw a kidnapping in those days, it wasn't what you think of now. It was. It was very often the child of somebody with wealth and prominence, and very often was done by the mob. And as long as you followed their instructions, the kidnapped person was normally returned. It was not that uncommon. Um, the first case where you really see a kidnapping and a murder uh, before Hauptmann was the uh, Loeb Leopold case, which was, you know, basically was considered to be the first thrill killing. Um, and then, of course, you had Hauptmann, but. It was, you know, it wasn't like you saw later, where you know, you'd see kids disappear, don't talk to a stranger. Yeah. That was that only started after the Lindbergh case. You didn't really hear too much of that before that. I'm not saying it didn't exist, but you didn't hear about it that much. Uh, people had their didn't always lock their doors back then, and it was just a different time. And so there wasn't this need to make kidnapping a serious felony. That changed after the Lindbergh case.
3: You would just think there would be more of it then with. Uh... <laughs> If it was just a misdemeanor, more people would have tried to do that with rich kids. You would think it would have become more common. That's all. But that's uh, just yeah. a, a thought. Wow. Uh, this is pretty pretty crazy case. Um, so in, at the very end of the day, do you think justice was served?
5: Um well, with regards to the execution, no. With regards to him being convicted uh, of the way they charged him, no, but do I think that Bruno Hauptmann kidnapped the Lindbergh baby? Yes, I do. Uh, I, my belief, based on the research, is that Halpin, uh did kidnap the child. I think more likely than not he did it alone, but I can see the possibility that there could have been somebody with him. I believe he was the one in the cemetery in the Bronx who extorted the money, um, and I think him being arrested and charged in that way would have been justice. The injustice, in my mind, is it being executed.
3: Whatever happened to his wife after after he was executed? Do we know?
5: His wife lived for many years. Um, she she refused to. Uh, she was somewhat of a pioneer in that. You got all these people now who take a knee for the uh, National Anthem and won't recite the pledge. She refused to to recite the Pledge of Allegiance because she felt her husband was wrongly treated. Um, She uh, moved. She lived in uh, in rural Pennsylvania with her son. Um, And some years later, in the 1980s, she hooked up with an attorney from uh, California who convinced her to bring a series of federal lawsuits against the state of New Jersey claiming wrongful death. They were all dismissed, but there was one positive of it. The governor at that time, Governor Florio, after getting these lawsuits, ordered the state police to gather up whatever evidence they still had and archive it and make it available for public review. So we did get the incredible uh, New Jersey State Police Museum and Archives, you know, with all of their uh, features on this case as a result. As a result of that, but um, she lived until the she lived. Uh, uh, for quite a while, and uh, she eventually passed of natural causes. Hmm.
3: Quite a quite a quite a um, a life. Quite a story. Wow. Well, she was. A, I consider her a
5: victim too. I mean, she was devoted to her husband. She was a she was a working housewife, and uh, she never believed. She never. I don't think she really accepted or believed that her husband did it. She might have had some suspicions. It's not clear. But she was devoted to him. For She never remarried, and uh, she was devoted to him and would tell anybody that would listen that she didn't think her Richard had done it.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, and, and in her mind, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> I guess that's what she believed. Uh, wouldn't you think that she would have seen him um, taking the wood and, and creating the ladder? And uh, I don't know. Ne-
5: not necessarily. I mean, he yeah. you know, he had a, a separate garage where he would work and you know it's a different time I mean, in those days a, a wife did not question if her husband was us or didn't question on it. that wasn't done then right you know this idea today you know and, you know men and women were equal, which is the right thing that wasn't so prevalent back then, and you know you know he he would not have discussed certain things with her. it just wasn't the way it was done and uh you know. If he was working out in the garage and building something, that wouldn't necessarily be unusual. He was a carpenter. So for yeah. him to build something or be working in the garage would not be that unusual. And for him to have a ladder, wouldn't have, if she'd seen it, wouldn't have been unusual because, he, you know, he was a carpenter, he would go to a job site. So, of course, carpenters might be on ladders working. It wouldn't be unusual.
3: Yeah, yeah. You know I mean? Yeah, no, I know. Was, it was a way different time. I mean, we're talking the 30s. Um, mm-hmm. I, I can remember my uh, father back at t- uh, talking... With my older brother and, and and his wife, and she started talking about s- selling a house and finances, and my father got really upset. You know, a, yeah. a, a woman it should never done. talk about his error. Wasn't done. Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> In
5: his error wasn't done. You know, today it's it's outrageous, but back then that was the norm.
3: Yeah, and so I, yeah, I could imagine. Um, there was just a different different set of rules. Crazy. Well. Again, this has been great. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and uh, I think people should uh, pick up the book. I recommend it. It's on our website, of course. It's on Amazon, and where all good books are sold. And uh, thank you for being. And they actually recently
5: came out with a. uh, They recently came out with a uh, an audio version. um, Yeah, So they make one mistake that drives me crazy. They keep saying Kohler. His name was Kaler. Drives me crazy. (laughs) But I uh, I wasn't. They just did that on their own, but. it's still.
3: Other than that, it's very good. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, I listened Besides to it. Uh, it was great. I I I do a lot of listening, and I thought it was great.
5: Yeah, James Sykes was the narrator.
3: He was very good. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of good That's ones true. out there, and I I I think it's yeah. the 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 wave of the future for books. So it's a good thing. Um, again, oh no r- doubt. R- It's uh, Richard T Cahill Jr. Don't punch in the other ones. Make sure you put the Jr. in there, and. <laughs> otherwise you'll get a different type of book so this is true well thank you for taking the time when you got a cold
5: I appreciate it very much
3: pardon me to find out more about our show (laughs) guests or to listen
4: to past shows
3: from our archive
4: please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com
5: show's over for now was it as good for you as it was for me
4: well good night this has been a production
2: of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing.